Bienvenidos a todos. You are listening to the Paseo Podcast, where we highlight stories by, from, and about the Puerto Rican community. My name is Joshua Smeza de Leon, and I want to thank you for downloading this episode. If you are listening to this on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are streamed, give this podcast a like and subscribe to it. It makes a world of difference. We started this podcast as a way to bring attention to the diverse and vibrant stories that make up the Puerto Rican communities here in Paseo Boricua in Chicago and around the world. From La Isla to the diaspora, we hope you enjoy what you hear. Hey everyone, so much has happened since our last episode. The pandemic has gotten worse. We've had an uprising calling for equality and equity for, for black and brown people here in the United States and around the world. The presidential election is almost coming to a close and Puerto Rico is having all types of issues from new tropical storms and botched primaries to a failing electrical grid and lack of federal funding for Hurricane Maria relief efforts. All this to say, we're gonna try and touch on a number of things that have happened this past summer their effects today, and a whole lot more. But today, we're sharing an unaired episode we recorded just before the pandemic hit us hard here in Chicago. So think of this episode as a care package until our one-year anniversary this August 27th, when we'll be back with all new interviews. For today's episode, I invited Afro-Puerto Rican comic book writer Vita Ayala. I invited her on the show via Zoom to discuss her love of comics, the comic industry, dealing with trolls online, and what she's working on now, and a whole lot more. Keep in mind, this episode was recorded before the pandemic, so some references and insights, while worth listening to, may be a little dated. Without further ado, let's jump into the interview. This is the Basel Podcast. I am here with Vita Ayala, a writer from New York City. They have worked on projects for powerhouses like DC, Marvel, and Image Comics, just to name a few. Vita is calling in. We're using Zoom conferencing right now. She's calling in from the Big Apple from New York City. Vita, how are you today? Hey, I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I'm happy we were able to make this time work. Um, what should our guests know about you? I guess that I write a lot of stuff. Uh, I live in Brooklyn, and so I got to pay my rent. My Twitter bio is pretty simple. You know, I'm Afro-Latinx. That means I'm Black and Latinx. I am non-binary. My pronouns are they, them. I'm just a, I, I'm a stay-at-home nerd, so. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, let's, let's, talk about, let's talk about the nerdy side of you. A lot of people associate comic books with being a nerd, but I don't know. I feel like that's like that's such a mainstream thing nowadays and you get to live that every day you write for you've written for a number of different comic books would you say that that is like peak nerddom for you does like comic books has that always been a passion for you like when, when did you first get introduced to the world of comics my parents would read me the sunday funnies uh because they're just we had newspapers and they were remarkably accessible. But I think the first, the first time that I consciously uh, asked for a comic book was uh, my mother. Uh, my mom was a single mom and she took us kids with her everywhere. She had to run errands and we were at the bodega and there was a spinner rack of comics and on it was a Wonder Woman comic and an X-Men comic. And on the X-Men comic, there was Storm and Bishop on the cover. And the Wonder Woman one was just Wonder Woman. But I miss, 
<laughs> I misinterpreted Wonder Woman as Puerto Rican. Oh. And I was like, oh, it's a Puerto Rican on a comic book. I want that. And then, of course, Storm and Bishop are, are Black. And so I, you know, I picked him up and I brought him to my mom. And I was like, these, please. And she was just happy that I wanted to read. And so she bought them for me. Uh, she's very, both of my parents were, were and are very, very supportive about pretty much anything that has to do with reading. Uh, and I, did, I didn't actually learn how to read until I was about 10 but this was before then. Since comics had pictures in them, I could enjoy them as much as, you know, as much as they will. Yeah. Were there any comics in particular that sparked your passion for the comic book world, for the writing world? Uh, yeah. It, it maybe slightly embarrassingly, uh, Lady Death was a favorite of mine yeah. <laughs> as a kid. <laughs> uh, Lady Death was, it's intense, the old, the old stuff back in chaos days. Uh, Birds of Prey, the, like, the first run of Birds of Prey, I, I adored that book. When I was 19, I think 19, Gotham Central started coming out, and I was super into that. All along, uh, pretty much from the age that I learned how to read, I was super into manga because I was, was and am a huge weeb, and so I was constantly buying volumes of manga, so like, you know, probably stuff that everyone's read, like Ron the One Half and Revolutionary Girl Utena and Sailor Moon and all that kind of stuff. Anything I could find. Uh, Flame of Rekka, all that kind of fun stuff. Did you watch any anime too growing up? Oh, a lot of it. I basically spent all of my money on anime, manga, and snacks as a kid. <laughs> there was a spot in uh, Chinatown where I grew up uh, that it was called Octopus Kingdom. It's gone now, RIP. And you'd go in and it was $5 for an anime tape, which could have like a movie or anywhere between two and five episodes of a show uh, or three for 10. So I would go in and I would drop my $10. That was supposed to be for my lunch and be like, hook me up. And I'd get two normal, like, you know, things that I already knew that I would like, whatever they were. This is where I saw Cowboy Bebop for the first time long before it came to America, stuff like that. And then for the third one, I'd always be like, you know my, you know my likes. You're my dealer. You're my guy. You know, hook me up. Uh, <laughs> I would oh, constantly great. get introduced to weird stuff. <laughs> oh, that's great. I love, I love anime. There's actually a buddy of mine. He's Puerto Rican as well, and he hosts his own Dragon, like Dragon Ball podcast. I remember growing up and watching Robotech, Cowboy Bebop, Attention, yeah. like that was Outlaw Star, all um, that stuff. That was my lineup. Let's go back. You mentioned uh, the number ten in previous interviews. You mentioned that. You've been writing for a long time, going back to the age of 10. Uh, it's my understanding that you didn't know writing for comics was even possible until you started to read the credits on the back of a comic book. And I think that I think in this interview, you had said you were about 19 years old. Where did you find the confidence from that moment on to decide this was something that you wanted to do to actually write for comics? And, and, how, and how was that? What was that experience like to actually pitch your work? I I really didn't find the confidence for a very long time. I write, I have always written compulsively. Uh, like like I said in that interview and, and a little earlier, you know, I, I learned how to read at about age 10. I taught myself how to read. It was a pretty rough situation. <laughs> I changed schools and went from one where people didn't care what you were doing to, you know, people were reading at a level that was two or three grades beyond what the stated grade was. And so I had to learn pretty quick. From then on, I, I'd always told myself stories in my head. Like that's always been a really big part of my of my life is me in my own head. I'm a Pisces, I guess that's pretty normal for Pisces. 
but I'm a, I'm that kind of dreamer and I'm always telling myself stories and making up scenarios and making up worlds. I love world building. And so when I learned how to read, suddenly I could put it down in a way where I couldn't forget it all. <laughs> I've always had kind of sketchy memory. I have some pretty bad brain damage. And so, I, you know, the idea that I could just keep it forever was, it blew my mind. And so I would spend most class periods writing in my notebook when I should have been paying attention. <laughs> and then when I was about 19, I started working at Forbidden Planet, which is a comic book shop. And it never really had occurred to me to look at the credits of comic books before. I kind of, like I'd had for some, but for the most part, what I was consuming more regularly was manga. I bought a lot more manga than anything else. And often with manga, the mangaka, you know, the main creator does the writing and the drawing. So I just assumed that you had to be able to draw to write to make comics, which I was very wrong. But I started working at Forbidden Planet. We'd have discussions about all kinds of stuff on the floor. And I kept hearing people talking about like, oh, this writer for this and this writer for that. And I was like, what are you even babbling about? Like, what is going on? And I started paying attention to the credits. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I could just write scripts. <laughs> That's a real thing. Uh, and I started looking into comic scripts. There were a couple of books out at the time where you could find comic scripts. And I, was like, I was like, oh, my gosh, like, this is this is incredible. But it wasn't until <laughs> my late, late, late twenties that I pitched my work at all. I was uh, once again working at Forbidden Planet, and I was working with Matt Rosenberg, who writes for Marvel and does all kinds of cool creator-owned stuff as well. Uh, we were both comic clerks at the time, and I would come into work early every day and write for like an hour or two hours, whatever spending on the day and he was like you should show people your work <laughs> that's how you get a job doing what you want to do I was like nah no we're good uh and he he had read some of my work and he very lovingly kind of pushed me out of my shell he was like listen the the worst that can happen is someone says no thank you and you're already not writing comics the worst has already happened you might as well do it and he helped me by introducing me to a lot of the people that he knew in the industry. You know, he was a little, uh, a lot ahead of me in terms of trying to break into comics. So he would introduce me to editors or other writers or artists. And, you know, I started kind of making friends in that way. And through that, I was able to find the courage to pitch my comics, which at first did not go very well because I was very new to it, but people were very patient with me. What was the first <laughs> company that ended up accepting your pitch? I, it was Black Mask Studios. Oh, nice. Uh, it was for a book that doesn't exist. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, it just ended up falling through. But that's okay, because I did another book with them. Um, then by them accepting it, you know it's possible. Even if the project as a whole fell through, you know that your work was good enough for, for a project of that caliber. Uh, yeah, at the very least, I was able to spit good game. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> most definitely. It sounds like it. I want to like, shift gears a little bit to your writing style. I took a look at your Patreon page, and I definitely want to set aside some time later on in the episode in the show where you can share with people where they can find your Patreon page. But on your page, you mentioned that you like to write stories that are fun, but have weight and meat to them. Now, I know there's a lot of good writing out there in the, in the comic book world, but compared to the comic book writing out there right now, what do you feel distinguishes your writing from others? I mean, I think, and this is something I've just believed in general, that each person's voice is singular. 
no one can write like me. That doesn't mean that there aren't people that are better than me. There are plenty of people that are better than me. But my perspective is my own, and no one else has that perspective. I can't speak for other people, but I personally try to put as much of myself into my work, whether it be licensed or creator-owned as possible, because I think that being vulnerable and putting yourself into your work helps people connect with it. What sets me apart is myself. If you read my work and you connect with it, then you, I, a little bit, it's you liking me as a person. If you don't, that's totally fair because I'm not for everybody. <laughs> I am who I am. I'm Black. I'm Puerto Rican. I'm queer. I'm non-binary. I am, you know, an older sibling. I have all of these things that make me uniquely me and give me a different take than anyone else would have on characters that have existed for 80 years or gives me a different perspective of how to approach telling any story. It sets everyone apart from each other. I think that that's the beautiful thing about storytelling in general, not just, you know, writing, but visual artists and color artists and, and lettering, all that stuff. Your experience and your, for lack of a better term, your soul is so unique that no one else can do what you do. I saw that you, you write for, you've written for the horror genre, superhero genre, thriller, drama, romance. You cover a lot of bases. What would you say is your most favorite genre to write for? Is that the easiest genre for you to write for? I have a lot of fun with all of them. I think at my core, I'm a huge sci-fi person. My mom is a huge sci-fi person. She is the reason that I am the way that I am. You know, we, she took me to, you know, when I was four years old, she took me to see Batman in 1989 in theaters. Like she, oh you know, she'd bring home like, it, yeah, that was a lot for a four-year-old. Yeah. Well, I just, the, the, I'm going to cut you off, but I remember the advertising for that movie made it seem like it was really, like really the movie to take your kids to. But there was some adult, there was like some adult content in there. I, 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 that's one of my favorite Batman movies. Same. But I, you know, even looking back, uh, that was probably not a good idea. But my mom, <laughs> my mom's a huge sci-fi person. We grew up, you know, with Star Trek in the house. Like that was, we had to watch that every week. And because she was a single mom, it was kind of like, well, I'm going to watch this. So you can either be across the room because our apartment wasn't particularly big, hearing everything that's happening or you can watch it with me. And for me, my imagination is much more dangerous than whatever anyone else has put on the screen. I grew up watching like Alien and Terminator. I saw T2 in theaters when I was a kid, like all that kind of stuff, Star Wars. So whenever I get to dabble in sci-fi, it makes me really happy. Uh, I'm writing Nebula right now, and it is definitely like a space Western kind of vibe. And it just makes me so happy every time I can write about this kind of intersection of technology, but also things never working out right. <laughs> Uh, but it is not easy to write sci-fi successfully because there's a lot of things that you, to me, even when we're working with like superhero stuff, that you you have to consider even if you don't talk about explicitly on the page. So I think about a lot of stuff and we'll like, really get jammed up like, wait a second, is this even possible if we're talking about science? And the science, the way that science works in this universe. And so like, to me, because I love it so much, I get kind of sometimes a little pedantic. I'm like, oh, I can't do that. I can't do this. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I, I, I enjoy writing in general. I'll, I'll write anything that anyone pays me for That's and things that they won't. <laughs> That's great. Uh, so let, let's go back a little bit to when you're 19 years old, you're looking at the credits on the back of a comic book and you realize, oh, there's 
there's a number of different roles that go into making a, a comic book possible from the writers to the illustrators, what have you. For people that are unfamiliar with what goes into the creation of a comic book, can you share what the collaborative process is like? And, and if any, you know, and if, if anything, what are you allowed to do? What are you not allowed to do in that creative process? It is incredibly collaborative. Even if you have a cartoonist, meaning a, a writer artist doing it, there's still so many other things that have to get done that there, you are, if you don't like group projects, comics are not for you. <laughs> uh, I being someone who does not draw, there is that extra, extra step. It doesn't start with a script. If I know who my collaborators are going to be, whether it be on creator-owned or licensed work, if I know who my artists and colorists and, and letterers are going to be, I, I try and reach out if I can. Twitter is a blessing. There, DMs are fantastic. You can make DM groups and just talk to the whole team at once in real time. I hate email, so that makes it a lot easier for me. Getting a sense of who you're collaborating with, if you can, is really important because as a writer, yes, I'm writing the script down and I'm doing a lot of the like outline stuff, but if I can outline things with my co-creator, then that's great. Or, you know, if I can talk about elements that I want to bring in with my collaborators and see how they feel about them, that's great because they are going to have to spend a lot more time with the, the script and with, you know, the project than I am technically. Try to do as much prep work as the group as possible. That's not always possible, especially in licensed work. So often I, you know, am writing a script not knowing my artist, so not knowing what they prefer in a script. And I try to kind of adjust and leave as much room as possible. Once I'm done with the script, uh, which gets approved by my editor or I do revisions, then it's handed off to the line artist. Bless them, they have to interpret this script that I've written. Importantly, I think that this, this script is a letter, a communication between you and your, and your team. That's not really for the public consumption, so you can't really be too precious about the script. You have to figure out how to communicate with your collaborators in a way that is the most conducive for them doing their job. And this sometimes means giving a lot of detail or sometimes it means giving a lot less detail than, than you usually would because they like to work that way. I work with a lot of artists who speak multiple languages. And so I have to consider like, all right, am I just dropping like, you know, like phrases that would make no sense to someone who doesn't have the context? I better like scale that back. Like that's how deep into it you have to get, right? But then the, the artists do their thing. Uh, the editor is the one then that coordinates everything. Although 99% of the time, my editors keep me on it so I can know what's going on and kind of give notes. I usually like to step back once, once the artists have has the book and not really step on any toes because honestly the artist is going to know how to do the visual part way better than I'm going to know it mm, yeah. <laughs> and so unless there's something that like I didn't communicate properly and so it gets left out I generally am just like this is great or I really like this or whatever mm. uh, I can't be an editor because <laughs> because I don't want to <laughs> I don't want to like give the nitty-gritty like oh well what about this and adjust this uh, that's why editor one of the many reasons why editors are dope Looking at this collaborative process, working on a team, even looking at the wider industry, the comic book industry as a whole, it's my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, Vita, but it's my understanding that there's little diversity amongst uh, people who work in the comics industry. Um, how, do you, how do you navigate uh, the comics world as a POC? I think that it's kind of actually a, a misunderstanding of things yeah. when people say that there, there isn't a lot of diversity. I think what we see is definitely a certain group of people, you know, being at the forefront of the industry. But I think that in terms of the creators, there have always been 
brown people and queer people and women making comics, making comics for the big companies even. Uh, but we didn't, it's just, we didn't get to see them partially because that's just how things used to work. You didn't really see comic creators like out in front of cameras, not talking about the image founders, right? Because they were very smart and did that big marketing thing. But we've been there in the trenches. I think that what was needed and what is changing is that there are more people of color and queer people and women in the production side. <laughs> mm-hmm. Need like editors and, and publishers and, you know, all of that other stuff, managers and, and all of that, bringing in more and more people and understanding how our stories work and supporting our stories because they understand how they work. Uh, not to say that that was not a thing that, you know, white dudes can't do. I wouldn't be where I was if that was the case. It was harder visibility-wise to see the people who were hustling behind the scenes and who were sweating and crying and bleeding for, <laughs> you know, for the love of making comics that were, you know, that are and were brown and queer and, and, and women. So I think we're here. <laughs> uh, is it enough? No. It's never enough. I firmly believe that it is never enough. And, uh, you know, I am, I am the brown and gay agenda that people warn people about. So. I always feel like whenever there's a change, this is more in like the comic book movie world, but whenever there is a change to a character, maybe the, the identity of the person, maybe they're a part of the LGBTQIA plus community, or maybe they're black, but the character was written originally as like a white guy. Um, but there's always a lot of chatter online, like, oh, this is PC gone mad, or, you know, this is just, this is just changing the, changing the character for the sake of changing the character. But I mean, these are fictional characters we're talking about. So why, why not have a diverse representation of people from different identities on the big screen and within the comic books? And I think you're absolutely right. There's, there's never enough, uh, there's never enough, uh, people from different backgrounds at the table and we should always be welcoming those voices because it creates a quality product and it creates a product that resonates and creates stories that I think really resonate with people. Um, Yeah, I agree. I agree. And it goes back to what I was saying before. I think that like everyone's voice is very unique, but also there are certain cultural things that people experience that make them unique. And mixing that into an industry that is seen as homogenous is really good. It means that we'll get new stuff. (laughs) And since this industry has been around for a very long time, we are always looking for new stuff. I think that people get very upset about changes at the kind of end stages because they don't realize what a privilege it is to have always seen certain kinds of people and they feel suddenly like they're disappearing. I'm being very generous here, I think. If we have told people that they don't have to empathize with people that are different than them for their whole life, then they're not going to do it. So part of this is growing pains, and they're going to have to suck it up and learn how to empathize with people that are different than them. And I don't feel bad about that. (laughs) Yeah. Have you ever had situations with fans that just take an issue with, with with your role in a, uh, in a comic book? Have you ever had that where oh, yeah. it's not even coming all from the time? Oh, okay. Yeah. Not, not from like a place of constructive criticism on the writing, but just blatant like misogyny or, or racism. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. All the time. All, all the time. Uh, people have a problem when I'm working on licensed stuff. People have a problem when I'm making new characters for licensed products. 
uh, right? They say, so if you're working on a license thing, well, make up a new character. Okay, so you do that. Well, uh, this is still in the license sphere, so make up your own characters and do your own thing. Okay, and then when I do that, people have a problem with that as well. Uh, my block list is something like 50,000 strong at this point on Twitter alone. People are pretty ignorant, um, but people are also fear and it's privilege. People are very entitled to certain things and they think that they have ownership of a genre or a character or whatever, not realizing that everyone feels like that. That's the point. It doesn't belong to one person. <laughs> so we have to, we have to share the choice. I saw a, uh, this is a recent, uh, I don't know how recent it was. Yeah, I think it was, yeah, it was a recent Twitter post. So I saw this recent Twitter post on your, on your Twitter feed and you shared an article from uh, terribleminds.com. Um, the headline was, hi, definitely don't tag authors in your negative reviews of their books. So this is, we're, we're, going, we're going off a little bit from fans that are attacking you and, and, and you're, they're on your block list to people that are just tagging you because they don't like your work. Or maybe it's a blend of, the, of those two different demographics. But um, you quoted the article and said, is it your job to protect our feelings? No, definitely not. It's also not your job to go out of your way to hurt them, which is kind of the point. And then you, you in that same thread, you also quoted, it's on us to find the reviews. If we want to roll around in the bad ones or pickle ourselves in, in the good ones, we can consent to that and seek the reviews out. How do you navigate on one end, people that do make your block list? So that's one method, blocking them on Twitter. How do you navigate those, those bad reviews and how do you also navigate people that um, maybe they just don't, maybe it's not rooted in anything. Maybe they just don't like your work, but they're going out of their way to not give it in a constructive way, but to deliver it in a mean way to you. How do you navigate that, that type of feedback from that type of audience? For the first kind of people, I, I don't engage anymore and I block and I mute and I, do, I block, I don't mute. <laughs> Uh, because I don't want them having access to my followers as well. I don't want other people having to see kind of the true nastiness that these people are capable of because it, those people haven't read my work. They just hate that I exist and they hate that I am taking up space. And that is something that I've dealt with my whole life. <laughs> and so that, I, you know, it doesn't mean that it doesn't get to me when people make videos about me and, and threaten my life and call me really nasty things and try and bring my family into it. That stuff still affects me. But at the end of the day, they don't see me as a person. And so I don't have to worry about them. They can meet me outside. That's fine. For the second group of people, I, I truly believe I, the, the hit of like dopamine and serotonin that you get when you read a good review is dope. I'm not going to say it's not. It's very nice. I think that reviews are for readers. The book is done. No amount of criticism is going to change it in any way, shape, or form. It exists. It's not being revised. That's it. The question answered in review should be, is it worth the person's time to read it? I, I've already read it. <laughs> you don't have to tell me. Thank you for tagging me in good, you know, in good reviews. That really does feel good. Uh, and it does help get motivation and all that kind of stuff. But if the choice was getting tagged in all reviews, including nasty ones or none, I'd choose none. They're not for me. And so I feel like, especially with negative reviews, an argument can be made for positive reviews. It, you're trying to get the person's attention and go, here, uh, you, I, I require you to look at this thing. If you don't like my work, then that is your right. 
I'm not going to force you to buy it. I don't want you to buy it. I don't want you to waste money on things you don't care about. So just, just don't. Tell other people that you, you know, in your sphere, they don't like the thing and, and move on. You don't need my attention or my validation for that. At, at best, you've succeeded in hurting my feelings and at worst, what you're trying to, trying to bring me into a discussion that I don't belong in because my work is my work and it's there. The discourse is for you, not for me. Oh, that's a good, uh, that's a good perspective. You know. I didn't, I think hearing your, your response, I'm like, yeah, that the, why, why do, why tag the author in something if you're, if you are critiquing it to that level, because yeah, it's, it's finite. The, the, the project's done. There's nothing, you can't go back and revise it. It's, it's really, it's not constructive criticism. Now, if we're talking about, and this is a different, I, being a philosophy person, really like to have discussions. So I'm not saying I don't like discussion. If we're talking about like things that are problematic, that's something to keep in mind, right? That is, that is a thing that I do want to know. If I'm doing something that is hurt, like harmful, because that is something that I, I, is a blind spot for me. I'm ignorant to it. And I might repeat it again. I don't, don't want to do that. But if you just like nitty gritty, don't like my writing style, then that's fine. I don't need to know that. My writing style is my writing style. Hopefully I will improve over every single project. But like, if you just fundamentally don't like me, then find someone you like that writes the way you like. Don't try to change me into someone that writes how you like. We want to take this moment to say thank you again for listening. When you download our podcast or subscribe to the podcast itself, that makes a world of difference. So gracias for taking your time to listen to us. We also want to take this time to thank the sponsor of today's episode. This episode would not be possible without the generous support of the Puerto Rican Cultural Center. The Puerto Rican Cultural Center, located at 2546 West Division Street, right here in Chicago, is a community-based, grassroots, educational, health, and cultural services organization founded on the principles of self-determination, self-actualization, and self-sufficiency that is all activist-oriented. For more information on the work they do, give them a visit at their website at prcc-chgo.org. Again, that's prcc-chgo.org. Now, if you or anyone else you know would like to be a sponsor of the Paseo Podcast, please email us at paseopod at gmail.com. That's P-A-S-E-O-P-O-D at gmail.com. Tell them Joshua from Humble Park sent you. Internet culture is interesting, especially Twitter culture. You got people that can just set up an account anonymously and just trash you. And you have no idea where they're from, who they are. And it's, it's, a, weird, it's a weird world. I know that you've amassed quite a following on Twitter. So there's a lot of people that love the work that you do. Um, and I see on your Twitter feed that you also put other people on, on your Twitter feed, which I think is really awesome. As someone who is Puerto Rican, you know, whenever I make it somewhere, I try to leave the door open for, for those coming after me or those of my peers that are doing great work that other people should be aware of. Um, so as I was looking through your, your Twitter feed, I, I always see you retweeting, affirming the work of others. And that's like people's writing, uh, stuff they've drawn. I think opening those doors up to a wider audience is important. Somebody that follows you may not be aware of other people working in the industry or even other characters that are out there in the comic book world. Are there any voices that you feel 
are missing from the comic industry from a workforce and a character perspective? Yeah, I think, I mean, we need more black and brown voices in general, right? Like, that's just true. But we also, you know, we need more trans black and brown voices. They're just not enough. I mean, we need more trans voices in general, right? We need more queer voices and especially more trans voices. But I can count on a hand how many people that I interact with on Twitter, you know, like regularly that, you know, I can uplift that are well-known that are brown trans people. I think that all of, I'm also biased because I think all my my friends in mutual should be famous because that's what they deserve, but like they deserve it. (laughs) I think that we need more, you know, more voices of people who are immigrants, who have, you know, transplanted their lives from one country to another once, twice, however many times. We need more. I think we're lacking in in, in the voices of veterans, especially of, of veterans of color and, and women. Like, those are perspectives that we should probably be listening to, uh, or at least hearing. I think that there are so many blind spots that we have, but the beautiful thing about Twitter, which is mostly a hell site, uh, but the beautiful thing is that it, in a very real way, it equalizes people. Anyone can, like you said, anyone can make an account and start tweeting Mm -hmm. as long as you have access to the internet. And that is actually beautiful. Twitter is responsible for a huge kind of power shift in how we talk to each other and how we think about media and how we think about society. There are so many black and brown people on there who have found a voice in a way that wasn't necessarily possible to them before social media and before Twitter itself. That's amazing. And so I just want all of the people that I constantly am like retweeting and stuff to just be seen more. And I want more people to come in and take my job. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's a good mindset to have. I had a guest on, her name was Jaiku Nioj. She is an Afro-trans Thaina poet uh, and a visual artist. Uh, And in our discussion, we started talking about the erasure of Afro, trans, even Taino history from the history books. And to your point earlier, Vita, you know, we've always been here. We've been here. We've been contributing and at a high level, we have not been highlighted. Um, So looking at looking at the comic book industry as a whole, I'd love to hear from you, like, what are some what are some dope Boricuas in the game right now that you're a big fan of? I uh, I am lucky enough to be friends with quite a few people, quite a few, you know, Boricuas and my people who are trying to get into comics and making comics. Uh, a good friend of mine, Raymond Salvador, who we've actually had the pleasure of working together before. He's a cartoonist. He's really, really good. He's on, he's on the Twitter and on the Instagram. Jules Rivera who does love jewels is always out there doing the Lord's work and, and also probably Satan's work as well, which is great. <laughs> she knows what I'm talking about. You know, uh, we have the, you know, the creator of La Borinquena, Edgardo Miranda Rodriguez is out there. He's constantly doing so much for the community, for the people. He's always trying to organize showings and events and signings. And he has this all kinds of stuff. He works with museums. He works with community centers. He does so much. Uh, Gabby Rivera, who I will forever love for, <laughs> for the run on America that they did. There's so many of us. There's so many, to, to bring it back a little bit, so many Afro-Latinx people and so many Latinx people out there that don't get, don't get the attention they deserve. I'm really good friends with, uh, you know, a person named Yesenia Moises who does uh, children's books and she uh, used to do toy, toy design and all kinds of stuff. Really great stuff. Alita Martinez, who's worked for Marvel NDC for like 20 years now, but no one, see, she's been there, but no one knows. You know what I mean? Hey, yeah, absolutely. We um, um and then they're not all Boricuas, but like 
I don't know. I, I grew up in a community where it was like, we, we got to stick together. We got to uplift each other. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, absolutely. I mean, when we look at communities that have been historically excluded um, solely based on their identity, just who they are, their existence. Um, it's just, it's, it's so unfair. It's so unfair because there's so much talent. There's so much beauty and there's so much that can be contributed if, you know, we all are just kind of in this, in this work together. Uh, and I think it's beautiful that I asked you about Puerto Ricans working in comics and you were, you were listening, you were listening to awesome people, not all Boricuas, but being intentional that it's not just about, it's not just about the Boricuas, it's about the coalition. So how are we putting That's other- the word. That's the word right there. That coalition, that, you know, Latinx coalition, we got to stick together. You know what I mean? No, most definitely. Most definitely. I asked you about uh, Puerto Ricans working in the comic book world or just people from different identities that are working in the, the comic book world. But now I want to shift gears a little bit to uh, characters in the comic books themselves. Uh, do you have uh, a favorite Puerto Rican superhero or villain that you'd like to write for? Now, to give you context, uh, in one of our earlier episodes, I had a journalist. Her name is Isabel Diepa. So she came on and we listed our top 10 Puerto Rican superheroes and villains. And it was really hard to beat that. <laughs> There's not. <laughs> yes, it is very it difficult. So hard. We could not find. It was so hard to get to the, a list of 10. Um, so I know there's not a huge pool to, to choose from, but there are, there are some good, there's some good characters out there. You definitely need more of them. But off the top of your head, are there any Puerto Rican superheroes or villains that you'd really like to write for and why? Uh, America Chavez, for sure. I, I mean, she's a space Puerto Rican, but Puerto Ricans kind of just adopt children and now you belong to us. That's how we do. Yeah, yeah. Welcome to the cookout. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like you're one of us now. You're going to learn how to, how to drink this rum and you're going to learn how to play dominoes. Let's go. Which I definitely learned at like five years old. Thanks, Grandpa. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> I, I think that America, to me, uh, Chavez, <laughs> not the country. Uh, but I think she's, uh, you know, I think she is actually kind of the, like the future face of the country. I think that she should be Captain America. I think that was my whole chest. Like I say it and I think it and I mean it. I think that her perspective is really interesting. Uh, she is, she's a queer, loud, intelligent, loving character. And I think that we need more of that. I don't mean that we should always be heroes and, and never villains because I think the villains are ultimately more interesting than heroes. But I think that she is someone who has an immigrant story. She is someone who is queer and has to deal with that. She is someone who works in predominantly white spaces <laughs> and still manages to hold on to who she is. I think that that's something so beautiful that I, I would love to to play with that. And after, like I, like I said before, after reading Gabby Rivera's run, it hurt me physically that it ended. <laughs> if it was still going then I wouldn't even bother saying I wanted to write America I'd just be like no I just want to read this but because it's not being written anymore I would love to to do that there's a bunch of Afro-Latinx and Latinx characters that like are so ambiguous too where you're just like are they are they Puerto Rican or are they something else they've never said what's going on <laughs> is that one is one of ours give me anyone Puerto Rican and I'll let you know I think there was like a Puerto Rican on the wolf pack we have white tiger like yes. just any of them just give them to me just I'll take them Love it. Love it. Yeah. For the longest time, just speaking of Miss America, for the longest time growing up, I thought Captain America was Captain Puerto Rico because he just has the one he star. He looks like Captain Puerto Rico. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Oh, man. Yo, all right. So I'm not the only one. I was like, that that boy is wearing the Puerto Rican flag. Look at him. He's a fine young lad. Look at him <laughs> representing his people. 
Hell yeah. I was like, man, okay, they finally threw some adobo in these comics. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> Just season this a little bit more. Uh, you know, that's what I'm talking about. Um, and he's in the comics. He was from the Lower East Side. I was like, yo, that's my neighborhood. He's clearly, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> yeah, he's, uh, is that Brooklyn? Was he from Brooklyn? Is that right? In the movies. In the movies, he's from in Brooklyn. The movie in, Brooklyn. The, in the comics, he used to be from the LES. He was, oh, he was on mine. I was really upset when they changed that in the movies. I was like, why you take it away, my Lower East Side superhero? What's going on? <laughs> uh, I wonder why they did that. You think because, like, Brooklyn is gentrifying and it's just, like, become this, like, hip borough in New York City? To like, okay, we got to make Captain America sound hipper? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it's right? kind of a weird change of all the things to change. I don't know. I can't even, like, find any conjecture in my brain right? to come up with, like, a... He's Captain Puerto Rico to me. So let's expand a little bit. Uh, we, we've, definitely, um, we've definitely heard who you'd like, what Puerto Rican superhero uh, you'd like to write for. But if you could write for any comic book character out there, hero or villain, who would it be and why? I would write Mystique. She's one mm. of my favorite characters of all time, uh, especially as, a, as someone who's non-binary. It was always so fascinating to me that she could be whomever she wanted, whatever she wanted, and that she in particular, there's a bunch of shape-changing characters, she in particular didn't feel the need to always be either a man or a woman. She was very fluid. She was just like, whatever, this is me today. <laughs> like, this is who I am today. And that was so, like, appealing. Also, she's just so badass. She's gay. Or she's queer. She's, she's just so dope. And I love a character who is ambiguous. I don't think she's necessarily a villain all the time, and she's certainly not a hero. I think that it's interesting when you have someone whose motivations are personal and their moral code doesn't adhere to any, like, outside structure. It has everything to do with their internal life. I think that's really interesting. You could have a lot of fun with that. Yeah, that's a great choice. Mystique was always one of my favorites, for sure. I always get confused with Mystique's like children. I, I always thought she was the mother <laughs> of Nightcrawler and Rogue, but yep. I know that's changed in different in different storylines, but that she's definitely She's a, she was the biological mother of Nightcrawler. She was actually supposed to be the biological father of Nightcrawler, which to me I was like, what a missed opportunity. Yeah. Uh, what a bummer. That would have been so dope. Uh, but she's the biological mother of Nightcrawler and then she adopted Rogue. And then last couple of questions I have for you, Vita. Um, do you have any advice for aspiring comic book writers, especially comic book writers of color uh, or comic book writers of different identities? Like if there's someone that's from the LGBTQIA plus community that feels like there's not enough representation in the comic book world or wants to bring their talents to the comic book world, how would you, looking at that coalition, um, do you have any advice for, for people that want to get into the comic book world? Do not do not listen to people that say that you can't do it or that you, you know, they already have comic book writers like you so that, you know, you might as well not do it. Don't listen to that. Your voice is needed, whether you're Black or, you know, Latinx or Indigenous, any of the letters in our beautiful queer rainbow, whatever, whomever you are, you are needed. So you have to write. Like, it's actually necessary for you to write. We need you to tell your stories and to come and tell these you know, classic stories. We need you to come in and, and do what you do. And that means you need to study your craft as much as you can. There are plenty of free resources online. Uh, I suggest reading lots of scripts. If you are interested in writing scripts, you can find a bunch of free ones for comic books that you already love online. Study what people have done that has worked and then do it your own way. Don't just copy it. 
your voice is the thing that's important. If you can't write physically every single day, I need you to, to do something that has to do with telling stories every day, whether that be, you know, talking about something that you really liked in media or playing a video game because they're pretty interactive or whatever. Take up D&D. I don't know. The point is you have to, there are going to be people that try to stop you actively and you, you cannot listen to them. You, you have to keep writing. You have to keep learning your craft. Remove any way for them to stop you. And then also realize that you don't actually need to be published by any of the big houses in order for your work to matter. So many people that I know that are doing the thing that are being paid to do what they love, did it themselves. They started themselves. If you have access to a computer and the internet, start uploading your stuff online. If you are able to make a PayPal for yourself, do it. Make a PayPal, take commissions if you're an artist, if you're a writer, start looking into what it takes to get your voice out there. Often online is going to be a really good tool for you, but if you can afford to go to conventions, go to conventions, talk to other writers, talk to other artists, don't stop. People will try and stop you. Do not let them stop you. I know that's like soapbox talk, but like legitimately, we need more people. <laughs> oh, wise words for sure. Um, I'm sure there's people listening that really appreciate that, that insight. Looking at what you have moving forward, are there any projects that we should keep an eye on that will be coming, coming from you in the near future? What projects are you working on? Uh, right now I'm working on Children of the Atom, which is a new X-Men book that oh. will be uh, beginning in April. Yes, April. <laughs> uh, I'm working on Nebula as well right now. I mentioned that earlier. If you like Guardians of the Galaxy, you'll know the character. Our team just finished Quarter Killer, which is a, a creator-owned book that is available through Comixology, but will also shortly be available uh, as a physical graphic novel print to order. So those things, please keep your eye out for this. For sure, yeah, thanks for sharing that. Um, how can people keep up with you on social media or do you have a, any websites or social media handles you'd like to share? How can people keep up with you? I primarily use Twitter. I am on Instagram, it is now private because of some of the people that we spoke about earlier. Uh, so there's no guarantee you can get through there, but uh, I use Twitter. My handle is at definitely Vita. Like you said, I have a Patreon. I'm not as active as I should be because I'm trying to kind of get a bunch of stuff to post. I'm doing like some podcast stuff and I'm working on some, some short fiction that I want to just post up to Patreon. So, but uh, I do have a Patreon, Vita Ayala. If you, you might not be able to find me through a search because doing queer work means that you're flagged as mature for some reason. Oh my gosh, wow. So wow, it's not really searchable, easy. but it's on my, my Twitter page. Okay. Wow, yeah, I, I you know I did not even think of that. Yeah, that makes it so much, that makes it so difficult to, oh, wow, I'm sorry to hear that. I definitely found your Patreon through your Twitter account. Well, I'm super happy that you made the time for this interview. I hope all of our listeners definitely pay a visit to your Patreon, pick up your work that you've done already. Definitely keep a lookout. We'll, we'll definitely be keeping a lookout for the next projects that you put out. I'm really excited, fan of your work, and palante. You know, I'm, I'm happy that, I'm happy to see you doing big things and blocking the bad things. <laughs> Vita, thank you so much for being on the Paseo podcast. Thank you for having me. This has been awesome. Special thanks to Vita Ayala for coming on the show. As a reminder, we are back with new episodes starting August 27th. So stay tuned for new content. We'll also have a couple of fun announcements to share that week too. As always, 
Keep up with us on our Facebook and Twitter pages at Baseo Podcast and visit our website, baseomedia.org. Until then, stay safe and healthy out there, everybody. Support one another as best you can. I know this continues to be a difficult time and an ever-evolving situation across the board, but we'll get through this together. Without our awesome guests, this podcast would not be possible. And without you, our listeners, this would not be possible. So we really appreciate you listening. If you want to reach out to the show, connect with us by visiting our website, baseomedia.org, emailing us at baseopodcast at gmail.com, and following us at Baseo Podcast on Facebook and Twitter. If you have a tip, want to pitch a story, or send us a compliment, we love to hear from you. Thanks for downloading this episode, and see you next week. Cuídate.